So every year when we do this uh, Yom Kippur service, I typically get uh, feedback that is positive and um, constructive, shall we say. Uh, I just love this service. It's, it's, it's an amazing service, and it's so good to see everyone uh, every year at our uh, bigger festivals. It's a blessing, and so welcome to our service. Uh, people point out, man, it doesn't feel really super Jewish. I mean, you've got a lot of a lot of crazy music, and it's all over the map, and it's eclectic, and you've got all this different stuff going on. And I always try to remind people that salvation is not just for the Jews, but for the nations. To the Jew first, and also the nations. And so we, we uh, attempt to put together an array of music both from the land and also from the nations. And that's why it's eclectic. Because Israel's eclectic. The nations are grafted in. Her borders are expanded. And so we try to represent both the Jewish believer and those from the nations. So I hope, I hope you appreciate that. I, I just love that about who we are and, and who God is. And the other thing is, is, People say, well, isn't this supposed to be a really solemn day? And what are you doing with music that's so upbeat and so exciting and so fell, fell, uh, full of joy and, and so forth? And I try to point out that uh, there was a major shift that took place when Yeshua came to this world. We moved from the law and the prophets to the kingdom of God, the messianic era. And in him, Yom Kippur is fulfilled. And so there's an element of joy and revival in the air as a result of what he's accomplished through his death and resurrection. So hopefully uh, that will orient you to uh, a messianic Yom Kippur that is somewhat different than maybe what you might be accustomed to if you've uh, only been in rabbinic circles. So today I want to pick up my theme from uh, what we started here a week ago. I want to talk about Satan, Azazel, and Yom Kippur. This is part two in a series. So I'm picking up, and if you weren't here for part one, well, you're going to have a lot of questions, but that's okay, because when you leave, you can upload that video, and you can watch it and get your answers. So this is part two. Last week, we noted that Yom Kippur is the holiest day on our calendar. It is the day that God cleanses his dwelling place, the priesthood, and all the people of Israel from their sins. In addition, we explored the two goats in Leviticus 16, the goat for the Lord and the goat for Azazel. Now, Azazel, as we noted, was not only the chief of the fallen angels in the book of Enoch, we also see strong parallels between him and Satan as revealed in the apostolic scriptures. Now, the big dilemma with Yom Kippur today is how does God forgive us? How does he atone for our sins? How does he remove our sins today without a temple, without a priesthood, and without the sacrificial system? We discovered last week that the rituals and the animals of Yom Kippur were types and shadows of the coming Messiah who would fulfill their meaning. So today we're going to pick that up and look 
at that fulfillment, more closely at the inaugural fulfillment of Yom Kippur in Yeshua, the Messiah. So if you can, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We don't have any slides today. We've been so busy in our fall festivals that we have no slides. So you're going to have to get out your smartphone or your Bible if you want to follow along. So this is Hebrews chapter 9. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. I, I want us to focus on this idea of the earthly sanctuary. And what is the reference to that? Why is there a reference to the earthly sanctuary? Think about that for a moment. This is the sanctuary that Moses was instructed to build on the earth. That's why it's called the earthly sanctuary in contradistinction to the heavenly sanctuary. So it corresponds to the one in heaven. What one is the real temple? Of course, the heavenly one. The one on earth is just a copy. It just represents the true one. We should never think of the one that Moses built and later Solomon is, is in fact the real temple. Those temples were temporary. Those were earthly temples. They were types and shadows of the true temple in heaven. Verse 2, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which is a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the ta tables of the covenants. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Yom Kippur, once a year, the representative of God's people went into the Holy of Holies with a blood sacrifice to make an atonement for himself and all the people of Israel. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this. The Holy Spirit is revealing this. The Holy Spirit is illuminating what this was all about, what Yom Kippur meant. The Holy Spirit is signifying this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. That earthly temple was a symbol for that era. It symbolized something. It wasn't the genuine article. It was temporary. It was a temporary dwelling place of God for a season, for an era, for an epoch of time. And that time would come to an end. That time would come to a close. And then the genuine article, the true temple, would appear. And it would replace the type and shadow that represented it. 
Does that make sense? So the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple was a symbol of God's dwelling presence. It symbolized God's presence among us on earth as it is in heaven. It was temporary. That's why the author calls this a symbol. It symbolized something else. And that dwelling place would certainly change and be replaced by another temple. One that would be surprisingly different than the one we see in Herod's time, in the days of Jesus. Now, Jesus hinted at this transition of time periods. That present time would come and close and give way to a new era, the era of the kingdom of God, the era of Messiah. Okay, Jesus hints at this, this transition of the location of God's dwelling presence in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 21. It says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, the doves, he said, Take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The temple of God, the dwelling place of God, called the house of God. It's his house. It's his home. This is where he dwells, in this earthly temple. The Jews then said to him, verse 18, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? We want your photo ID. We want your background, right? We want your, what schools did you go to type thing, right? By what authority do you do these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. This is where he's hinting at a transition that's coming in terms of the location of God's dwelling presence. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So this implies two things. Number one, his body was a temple for God's presence to live in. John stated this much earlier in chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. It says, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one on behalf of whom I said, after he comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him, remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, 
he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The Spirit of God would descend on the prophets, on the kings, on the priests at different times, and then lift off, descend, settle, lift off, over and over and over. The Lord says to John, when you see the Spirit of God descend and remain, you'll know that this is my Son. It's the remaining upon that gives us a clue that God is shifting his dwelling presence from the earthly temple to the temple of the body of his Son. The second thing that's implied is in his death and resurrection, the reformation this transition of location will be accomplished. God will have moved from his dwelling place on earth in the temple to a new location, the body of his son. Prior to this, where did God dwell? In the earthly tabernacle. Later, the temple in Jerusalem. Behind what? The veil, behind the curtain. I'm the Lord your God who dwells behind the curtain. This is in reference to the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the other compartments or locations within the temple. That curtain is about 10 inches thick. To move that around, especially in the days of the tabernacle, when they moved the temple or the tabernacle from place to place, it took a great amount of men to carry that that disassembled temple, the, the, the curtain itself, it weighed so much it took a lot of men to move that around. But it was that curtain that separated the presence of God from the rest of the temple. This is where he dwelt in the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. Notice what Matthew says concerning the moment of Jesus' death on the cross in Matthew 27, 50 through 54. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him regarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. The moment of his death, the precise moment when he expired, when he breathed his last breath, an earthquake and the curtain from top to bottom splits wide open. What did that signify? What did that imply? If that was Vegas, we would have an announcement. God has left the house. This is the great transition of God moving out from his earthly dwelling place. The curtain is open and he's on the move. 
There's a great transition in this reformation, moving from one time period to another in which his new location will be his son, the body of his son. Back to Hebrews chapter 9. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. The types and shadows pointed forward to the great time of reformation and transition in which Yeshua, the Messiah, would fulfill all the promises contained and represented in the types and shadows. First the natural, then the spiritual. And the transition in Yeshua is from the natural to the spiritual. When God moves anything from the natural to the spiritual, it is called a reformation. The transition of God's dwelling presence from the earthly temple to a spiritual temple was a time of reformation. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, was the catalyst for this transition. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Jesus, our high priest, represented in the earthly high priest, who would go into the Holy of Holies. Jesus now, is going to ascend into heaven, into the Holy of Holies, and actually accomplish which is prefigured in Yom Kippur. Verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The eternal Son of God, who is one with God, had coursing in his veins the very eternal life of God, so that when his blood was poured out for our sins, that atonement was an eternal atonement, an eternal redemption. It only needed to take place once, one time, because it's eternal. It would never need to be repeated. It's a once and for all sacrifice. All of the sacrifices pointed to that one sacrifice, which would be an end of all sacrifices, but because it would accomplish a redemption, an atonement that would last forever. This is the glory of the Son of, of God. His crucifixion, his blood poured out, it's his glory, it's his love poured out for you and me. Verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed, under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal 
inheritance. What was foreshadowed in every Yom Kippur was actualized in Yeshua's death, his descent into the realm of the dead, the underworld, and his resurrection and ascent into heaven to make an eternal atonement for all believers past, present, and future. This is a crescendo in Reformation. And keep in mind, keep in mind, he's not only the lamb, the sin offering, making an atonement through his death, he's also the living lamb who pictured in the goat for Azazel will take the sin of the world to the realm of the dead, to the king of the dead, to the one who once held the keys of death, and he will offload the sin of the world in the realm of Azazel, as pictured in the book of Revelation, where Satan will then be gathered with all of his fallen ones and cast into the lake of fire and tormented day and night forever and ever. There's so much here in Yom Kippur that finds its actualization in the person and work of the Messiah. It goes on to say, for where a covenant is, there is of necessity the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while those who made it live. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and the scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to, to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. The earthly sacrifices were simply cleansing earthly things. It goes on to say, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What Yeshua did is performed a sacrifice that could cleanse us through and through, that we would find in him a final full cleansing, that everything that was pictured in the sacrifices would be realized in him. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, Verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not of his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His was the ultimate sacrifice. His bloody sacrifice on the cross ended all sacrifices. None of them are needed ever again. They were pointing towards him. 
and then he fulfilled them. So significant is the event of his death. There's so many things tied into that. The descent into the realm of the dead in the underworld and his resurrection and ascent into heaven. Think of this for a moment. This author describes this reformation of time in such a powerful way. He says, but now once at the consummation of the ages, let me, let me give you some different translations to, to really bring about the import of the meaning of this passage. What Jesus did brought about the consummation of the ages. He brought about the end of the ages at the conclusion of the ages or the climax of the ages, the culmination of the ages. In the end of the world, he came and died. It actually brought about the end of the world. If you can think about that for a moment. In him was birthed the new creation, the beginning of what is coming. If you will, a new world order. He came at the close of the ages, at the fulfillment of the ages, in the last days of the world, in the ending of the worlds, at the full end of the ages. These are all translations of this passage. So Jesus actually ushered in a new age, the new world order, as prefigured in his resurrection. That new creation that we look forward to began in his resurrection. He is now king of kings and lord of lords. He's over all earthly and heavenly authorities. And God is in the process of reconciling the world to himself through Yeshua's death and resurrection. In Yeshua, justice will be met. Judgment will be accomplished. For many, it will result in punishments and a permanent, irreversible death in the lake of fire. And for others, it will result in mercy, rewards, celebration, salvation. This is amazing in every way. Verse 27, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without any reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So in conclusion and application, a messianic Yom Kippur is fundamentally different from all other Yom Kippurs in that ours is actualized and initially fulfilled in Yeshua, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We do not need an earthly temple or earthly sacrifices. In Yeshua, we are the living and true temple of God. We are forgiven. As the Lord himself has stated, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 
Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. In Yeshua, this promise has become our reality and our experience. We are cleansed. You are cleansed. We are new creations born from above. We are redeemed and our redemption is an eternal, unending redemption. In Yeshua's atonement, the grace of God has been poured out on us who believe in him. As the songwriter so aptly wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. I'm going to end with the Hebrew greeting for this holy day. It is simply Yom Tov, translated good day. And because of Yeshua the Messiah, it has become the consummate good day. It is a great day. So to you and your loved ones, in Yeshua's matchless name, Yom Tov, good day, and Shabbat Shalom, and may God's spirit and blessings, purpose and destiny unfold for you and your families in this up and coming year. Yom Tov. I'm going to transition to our offering. Give you an opportunity to give an offering today on Yom Kippur. So if you need an envelope for cash giving, just raise your hands and the ushers will get you an envelope and you can give an offering today. If you'd rather give that on your smartphone, you don't need an envelope. If you're writing a check, you don't need an envelope. Just write the check out to the harvest. And so I've selected this song uh, for the offering today. And the theme of the song is unity in the spirit. And I want to remind us that this unity that we have in the Spirit is manifested in every appointed time. The appointed times are holy convocations. These are the times that we gather together to experience unity with one another. It's a practical unity that we experience in the appointed times a unity of identity, that we are Israel, the people of God, a unity of purpose, a unity of fellowship. We're going to spend eternity together so we get a chance to get to know each other now as we step into that for all eternity. It's the holy days that bring us together. It's the holy days that give us this unity. It's the holy days that define us. So I picked this song. I hope you enjoy it. It's one of my favorite songs because it has lots of horns, and I love horns. And on my father's side, we have this kind of Sephardic ancestry, and so I love the Mexican music. So I hope you enjoy this as well. I think we've got a little bit from all the nations. I think you'll enjoy this one. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We bless you.
We thank you for the opportunity to give back to you. We thank you for this holy day. It's so remarkable. In the glory of Yeshua, your son, our savior. We say to you, Yeshua, we belong to you and you belong to us. Lead us, O oh, our king. Use us for your glory that we would share your love with all of those around us. What a great day this is because you, Yeshua, made it great in your death and in your resurrection, in your ascension. You have made this Yom Kippur the great Yom Kippur. So we bless you in Yeshua's mighty name and all God's people said. All right, that concludes our service for today. We're going to do the Aaronic Benediction in just about one or two minutes. Uh, I just want to make some concluding remarks. Um, I want you to just get this in your heart, that in Yeshua, you are forgiven. You are cleansed. You're born again. Do you realize that your sins are forgiven? Your past sins, your present sins, your sins tomorrow and next year until Jesus come, they're also forgiven. They'll be forgiven even as you commit them. In him, your salvation is complete. It is full. It is finished. So you can rejoice and rest in that great love as you share that with all of those around you. Share the love of God. Open your mouths. Pray for those around you. Love on those around you. Do good deeds in the name of Yeshua for those around you. And let's lead a multitude of people into the kingdom of heaven prior to his return. God bless you. God bless you. You are forgiven. Receive that word in Yeshua's name. Amen.